You know, the Christmas season has always been my favorite time of the year, and I know it is for many of you, and uh, several reasons, but among those reasons, at the top of that list is Christmas music. I I love Christmas music. Uh, Now, let me also say this, even though I love Christmas music, I am one of those guys that I like to at least get through Thanksgiving before I just start blasting it. And once Thanksgiving is through, now I'm, I'm going to play it the whole month of December and it's nonstop and I'm going to listen to it. And I, I, you know, I, I just love listening to Christmas music and jamming along uh, with all of the tunes. My, my family is a little bit different. My wife and kids, they start playing, and maybe you're like this, they start playing Christmas music the day after thing or the day after Halloween, you know, a lot of the stations will start playing it November first, and my family is blasting it away, and they're ready to play it, and I'm kind of like, okay, let's slow down a little bit. I love Christmas; it's my favorite time of year, but let Thanksgiving at least get through before we, uh, you know, before, before we start playing because we have a whole month to play. You know, there's only so many Christmas songs that we can go through, but. This year I told them, you know what, Christmas can't come fast enough, so let's just play, you know, play all the songs that you want to. So we've been blasting it uh, as long as it's been on. Uh, Let me also say this, having said that, while I am a fan of Christmas music, I am not an indiscriminate fan of all Christmas music. Because there is some Christmas music, if we're just being honest, that is just bad. And I'm not going to name any songs just in case you really like the song, so don't want to offend anybody. But there, and you know, you know what they are. There, there are some just bad Christmas songs. There's also some, some, uh, some songs, some Christmas music that is a little bit confusing. For instance, have you ever really figured out what happened the night Jesus was born when it comes to sound levels? I mean, one song says that it was a silent night, another song says the cattle were lowing, another song says that some little boy showed up and did a drum solo, so I have no idea how loud or how quiet it was the night Jesus was born. And some Christmas songs are just odd. I mean, Dominic the donkey, where, where, you know, and, and, and Grandma got run over by a reindeer, and uh, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. I mean, they're just some odd songs. Or how about this? You just, you know, think about this, that you're, you're at your house one evening, it's later on in the evening, and you've already got your pajamas on, you're kind of, you know, chilling and, and relaxing, maybe, you know, doing some things, watching a little TV before you go to bed, and suddenly the doorbell rings, and you go out onto your porch, and there's a group of uninvited strangers that start singing, we wish you a Merry Christmas, which is nice in and of itself, but then they start to get a little bit demanding, and they say, now bring us some figgy pudding. Well, I don't have any figgy pudding because I'm having a Merry Christmas and the two don't go together. And then get this, they get even more demanding than that and they start singing, we won't go until we get some. I mean, can you imagine the nerve of these people, right? And so there are definitely some odd Christmas songs, but I would also contend that some of the most gospel-rich, theologically brilliant songs are Christmas hymns. Sometimes we are so familiar with them and maybe we sing them kind of nonchalantly that we don't realize the depth of what we're actually singing and the words and the meaning behind those words. And so this December, I would just challenge you to listen a little more closely. Listen again to those songs that we sing and that we hear, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Joy to the world, and O holy night, and hark the herald angels sing. 
Now, if we were to have a debate about the greatest Christmas hymn of all time, I'm sure that it would get intense, and we've probably all got our votes for different hymns, and I know I would have some that uh, would be at the top of my list, but let me give you one that, that I think should be at the top of your list, the very top of your list, although it's not one that you probably would initially think of uh, as a Christmas hymn, but it's one of the oldest Christmas carols that the world has ever known because it's in the New Testament. In fact, it might be the oldest uh, words in the New Testament, not the first words written in the New Testament, but it's the song or a song that the early Christians sang very, very early on in the days of the church about the coming of Jesus. It's in the book of Philippians, and if you have a print Bible, you notice, you probably notice that it's actually in verse form, and actually I think it may even be that way in the uh, in the Bible app or whatever uh, app that you are using, because it's a popular song that Paul is quoting. And I think it's perhaps the greatest Christmas song ever. It goes like this, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so as we head into Christmas, we're going to be in a series over the next few weeks called Christmas is for who? And so over these next several weeks, I want to share with you some passages of Scripture that talk about the different who's that Christmas is for. No, I'm not talking about Whoville or the English rock band from the 70s, but we are going to be talking about the whom's and the whoever's and the who's, W-H-O-S-E. And I'm sure the grammar police are going to have a field day with me, but hopefully my grammar does not get in the way of us coming to a better understanding through this series of who Christmas really is for. But before we can talk about, or before we are going to talk about who Christmas is for, we need to talk about who Christmas is about. And so as we begin this series today, we're going to talk about the who, because Christmas really is all about who. And that who is Jesus. You know, every religion basically is trying to answer the question, how does a person get to God? But behind that question is really an even deeper question and really a more important question. Who is this God that people need to get to? And Christmas answers that question like no other religion ever has or ever will. Because other faiths teach basically that God is above and God is alone and basically God is aloof. But Christianity says God comes. And even more than that, Christmas says God stoops. Look again at the very first verse of the song from Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Literally, literally, that phrase there is something to grasp onto or to cling 
too. And so even though he was God, even though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be grasped onto or something to cling to. And that is so foreign. Even those words and that idea is so foreign to our basic human nature because we are, by nature, graspers and clingers. We want to hold on to anything that we think gives us an advantage. We don't like giving up anything. I heard a story about a guy who decided that he needed to lose some weight. And one of the things that he was going to do is cut out donuts because every morning on his way to work, he would pick up donuts, a box of donuts. And he kind of said it was for his coworkers, but he always had a donut too. And so he would pick up donuts for himself and for his coworkers. And so he decided, I'm just going to cut out donuts so that I can try and lose some weight. And he told his co-workers of his stand against the lure of donuts and how he wouldn't be bringing donuts into the office anymore. He even, in fact, uh, made an effort that he was going to take a different route to work so that he wouldn't go by his favorite donut shop on the way to work every morning. And so he, a couple days, few days went by and he was doing really, really well. He even shed some pounds. He cut out donuts, hadn't had a donut in a few days. But then one morning, he arrived at work with a big box of donuts. And when his surprised co-workers asked him what was going on, he said that these were no ordinary donuts. He said, these donuts are from the Lord. His co-workers looked at him like, they're from the Lord. What do you mean by that? And the man said, well, it's quite simple. Today, on my way into the office, I accidentally took my old route to work and I went by that donut shop, my favorite donut shop. And I looked in the window and I saw all those glazed and chocolate covered donuts calling my name from the window. And I knew I had to pray for deliverance and strength. And so I said, Lord, if you want me to have one of those delicious donuts, then you're going to have to give me a parking space right in front of that donut shop, right in front of it. And if that happens, I know that you want me to have one of those donuts. And sure enough, the eighth time around the block, there was that parking space right in front of the donut shop. Here's the point. We don't mind giving. It's the giving up that we have a harder time with. I mean, even just think about some of our reactions to some of the things that we've had to give up over these last several months and everything that we've been through. Think about your reactions to those things. We, we, we don't mind giving. It's the giving up that we have a hard, harder time with. It, it's much easier to give than it is to give up. And so I'll be generous at Christmas and I'll give presents to those that, that I love and I'll give them nice presents. I don't mind giving, but I'm not giving up security, control. I'm not giving up my rights or my privileges or the advantages that my station in life affords me. But you see, the very first Christmas is bigger than giving. It's about God being willing to give up. The first Adam was a grasper. He, he was an ascender. He, he wanted to ascend and go and grab likeness to God. And so in Bethlehem, a second Adam was born, who descended and let go. He didn't consider equality with God something to, to, to grasp onto or to cling to. And this is who 
Christmas is about, the God who chose the greatest demotion in history. You know, if you try to explain our faith to other religions in the world, they would say, who did what? So let's try to explain. First, who came to us? Remember, the son existed before the child was born. Christmas is not the beginning of Jesus. It is the beginning of God among us in the person of Jesus. Now, God, by his nature, reveals himself through creation, reveals himself through scripture, but the most perfect and the most complete revelation God has ever given of himself came to Bethlehem. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Christ is the visible image of, of the invisible God. The prophets called him Emmanuel, God with us. That's who Jesus is. And this is so foreign to how most faiths think about God. In most religions, God is not just above, but he is fixed. He is stationary. He is unmoving. But Christmas says, no, God does actually move. In fact, God comes. The God of the Bible hits the road And so he says to Abraham, I will be with you. And he said to Moses and Israel, I will go with you. But the most incredible journey that God ever took was to a manger. Again, remember, most faiths, most religions are answering the question, how can a person get to God? But Christianity, and especially Christmas, tells of a God who came to us. A God who is above, but he would not remain aloof from us. John puts it like this in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling, made his home among us. It's not just that God came our way, it's the way he came. And I think we've, we've heard so much, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I know at least for me sometimes we, we, we've heard this so much that I think we forget what a radical statement this is. There are places in the world today that if you proclaim that God became flesh, that God became a human, you would be considered a blasphemer and in some places you would be executed. But Christianity says who really did come? To earth, because he didn't just come to us, who became like us. And this is really what separates Christianity from all other religions. Somebody who says all religions are basically the same really hasn't studied all religions, because Christianity makes a claim about God that is completely unique and radical, and if we're just being honest, kind of preposterous. Christmas says that God was once a single cell, a fertilized egg in the womb of a teenage Jewish virgin girl. That that the infinite became finite. That the invisible became visible. That the omnipresent squeezed himself into an embryo. I mean, like, do you even realize what we're saying here? That if you believe the Christmas story, then you believe that the one who spoke the universe into existence had to learn how to talk. That the one who moves history had to learn how to walk. 
that the one who holds everything, the entire cosmos together, was so frail that he had to be held just to survive. And everything hinges on this claim. In fact, in the early days of the church, some thought this was just too crazy to believe. And so they started saying, yeah, Jesus showed up, but there's no way he was actually a man. I mean, God wouldn't go that far. And so John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, no, you need to test the spirits. Because you need to, here's how you know if this, is, if this message, if this spirit is from God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. We're not saying that Jesus was half man and half God. No, we're claiming a mystery bigger than, than our minds can even fathom, that he was fully God and fully human. He didn't relinquish his divine nature, but he did relinquish his divine privilege. He divested himself of certain divine attributes, and as long as he was among us as a man, he never reclaimed them for his own comfort or advantage, which means that there were nights when Jesus went to bed and he was hungry because he was a poor man, and he didn't have enough to eat. And there were times when he could have used an extra blanket because he was cold. And when he was walking and he hit his foot on a rock, it cut and bled just like your foot and my foot would. And at the long end of a long day of teaching and preaching and walking, he probably yawned. And his body ached because he was just tired to the bone. That's one reason the Bible says that Jesus is a faithful high priest. It says that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And we can go to him and, and we can talk to him and we can lay our, our struggles and our difficulties at his feet and before him because he fully immersed himself in the frailty of humanness. And so when life is hard and it hurts, you can talk to Jesus. Because he's been there. And no other religion tells you about a God like this. No other religion would dare to conceive that God was once conceived. But he didn't just come to understand what it's like to be human. And he didn't come just to empathize with our plight. He became visible and touchable because God had to become perishable. I said earlier that many of our Christmas carols are drenched in gospel. They really are so theologically deep and, and rich. And one of the ones that I, I love, one of my favorites that often comes to mind is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I think I mentioned it earlier. But just listen to the words. This is verse two. Mild he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Because he didn't just come to us or become like us. Who came for us? And this is where Christmas gets offensive. 
Because the common narrative that we're told in our culture, in our society is I'm okay and you're okay. We're all carriers of our own truth. You just have to look inside yourself and find what truth is yours. And we're all getting a little bit better each and every day. But if I'm okay and you're okay, then we never would have heard of Bethlehem. Christmas is an indictment on the human condition. We like to think that we're all basically good people and we just need a little polishing up, a little repairing. But here's the truth. Jesus didn't come because you needed to be repaired. Jesus came because you and I needed to be redeemed. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to rescue us, not to repair, but to rescue. It was the greatest moral dilemma of history. God loves his kids, but he's too holy to be in the presence of sin, and his kids have sinned, they've rebelled. And so how does God save his kids and not compromise his holiness? You can't be sinful in the presence of God. The wages of sin is death. You die if you are sinful in the presence of God. Someone has to die for the kids' sins. Either the kids or a sinless substitute. The solution couldn't just be spoken. It had to be suffered. And Bethlehem saw the arrival of a God who would do just that. Remember what the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, which literally means God saves. Why? Why that name? Because that's exactly what he came to do. He will save his people, not from their enemies, not from their problems, but he will save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't come just to be your life coach or my life coach. He didn't just come to give us good counsel and advice. He came because we needed to be rescued. He came because we needed to be saved from our sins. Everyone loves Jesus as long as he's just a moralist. But let me be clear. You're not a Christian simply because you admire what Jesus taught and you want to emulate his teachings. You're not a Christian simply because you are a good person. You're a Christian because you've recognized and admitted your fallenness and your brokenness, your rebellion against God, and you have surrendered your heart to his, begging him to wash you in his blood and give you his righteousness. That's what makes you a Christian. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, who is this God? That he would come to earth? I mean, would God do that? And not only that, but he would come as a man and not only that, but he would come as a servant? Would God go that far? But if that's as far as God came, he would not have come far enough. We could never hope to be where God is if he was not willing to go where only we deserved to go. 
So who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross? You and I don't have a choice as to whether we will be obedient to death. Like, we don't have a say in the matter. You will be obedient to death whether you like it or not. But Jesus chose it. And he would not reclaim his glory until he had done everything he had done, had to do to reclaim you and me. Peter bluntly puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body. That's why Jesus came. That's, that's why there had to be an incarnation because we needed a substitute. And so he himself bore our sins in his body. And he carried them to a cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is who is lying in that manger. This is why Christmas is a big deal because it's not just answering the question, how does a person get to God? It's answering the bigger question, who is this God that you and I need to get to? I love what Max Lucado says. It's, it's just, it's awesome. I'm gonna read it, what he says. Listen to these words. Consider the gift for a moment. What Jesus really did. He swapped a spotless castle for a grimy stable. He exchanged the worship of angels for the company of killers. <clears throat> He could hold the universe in the palm of his hand, but he gave it up to float in the womb of a maiden. If you were God, would you sleep on straw, nurse from a breast, and be clothed in a diaper? Christ did. If you knew that only a few would care that you came, would you still come? If you knew those you love would laugh in your face, would you still care? If you knew the tongues you made would mock you, the mouths you made would spit on you. The hands you made would crucify you. Would you still make them? Christ did. He humbled himself. He went from commanding angels to sleeping in the straw, from holding stars to clutching Mary's finger. The palm that held the universe took the nail of a soldier. Why? Because that's what love does. It puts the beloved before itself. Your soul was more important than his blood. Your eternal life was more important than his earthly life. Your place in heaven was more important than his place in heaven. And so he gave up his so you could have yours. Christmas is not about giving. It's about the God who gave up. He stooped in love and humbled himself. And this was not out of character for him. This was not unusual. He didn't humble himself despite being God. He humbled himself because he is God. And that's the kind of God that he is. This is who God is is what the manger proclaims. 
You see, Christmas challenges the commonly held narrative that there is a God. He's way out there. He's a long way away. And he is really ticked. And you better find out what you can do to appease him, right? No. Christmas says God is humble. God is kind. And God came looking for you long before you ever thought about looking for him. Christmas says that there is a God who was willing to become less so that heaven could have more. And so he stooped and he showed up in a manger. And that was just the beginning of a life of stooping. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus in his life stooped? He stooped to embrace kids. He stooped to pull Peter out of the water. He stooped to look into the eyes of an adulterous woman. He stooped to wash the feet of those who should have been washing his feet. He stooped to carry a beam that he would be nailed to. Because Jesus is God. And God is love. And love stoops. Christmas says God loves you so much that he stooped so that you could look into his face and know who he really is. You see, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. He came to change our minds about God. And Christmas is God wanting you to know who he really is. Because if you know who God is, it'll change who you are forever.